The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Tech. My name is Goro Sodi. Joining me today are analysts uh, Mickey Mordek. Good day, Mickey. Thanks, Gaurav. And with us also is James Carlow. Hey, James. Hey. Gents, let's get straight into it. Mickey, you published an article on advanced nanotech. And when you pitched the idea originally, I must say, I my first reaction was, why the heck are we writing about this thing? All I'd heard was controversial um, shenanigans from management. Um, they sound awful, the guys running this company. I didn't want anything to do with it at any stage, yet you wrote it up anyway, and it ended up sounding kind of interesting. Tell us firstly how you came to this stock and why you stubbornly pursued it, even though um, some of us thought it was awful from day one. Oh, no. Well, I, I, I don't know if I even... I think I may have sprung it on everybody at the very last minute and just said, I'm publishing this. Um, so <laughs> I don't think I gave anybody a chance to object. Um, but I, I, think, I, just, I think I did. I did loudly. Object <laughs> uh, I just came across it, uh, you know, on, on the internet of all places. Uh, so I, I can't remember. It must have, I've seen it around um, on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, sorry, mm. not Facebook, uh, just just around. Uh, so I oh, started to... The source of all great investment ideas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so had a, had a look at it. Um, there is a little bit of controversy. I, I think, you know, yeah, I wouldn't categorize management as... as, as um, in necessarily in a negative light. I think uh, they've done a fantastic job, in particular Lev Mizakovsky, who so I'd better go back quickly and kind of explain what the business does. But um, so that's kind of how I came to the came to the idea, I guess, was just kind of around it's on Twitter a lot. There's a lot of small cap investors that are interested in this business. So just decided to take a quick look at it. Uh, and the business basically produces it has a technology that can produce um, nanoparticles of a very specific size and shape uh, and so they, the, the main product at the moment is Zinclear and Zinclear is a zinc oxide nanopowder and uh, and so the nanopowder uh, is essentially it's one of the safest ways that you can protect uh, from sun exposure uh, and uh, and there's currently kind of reviews into other kinds of chemicals I guess uh, in sunscreen uh, that you know, potentially could see some of the band. Uh, and so the, the narrative is... Question of, sorry, yeah. can continue. Go, no, finish, finish with the narrative and I'll ask you a question. Yeah, yeah. And so the narrative is basically for the bulls is that, you know, people are shying away from chemical-based sunscreens and, uh, you know, the future is going to be zinc oxide sunscreens. And these guys, you know, have the patented process for making it cheaper and better and higher quality than anybody else. So, mm. uh, you know, they'll, they'll capture the market and make lots and lots of money, basically. So, so I think, I mean, the the old style, and you had a picture, fantastic picture. Everyone's got to go and have a look at it, of warning <laughs> with sunburn all over his cheeks and this sort of thin stripe of white on his lips. And the, the, the old style zinc um, basically had large, this is how I'm understanding it, tell me if I'm wrong, it had large lumps of zinc in it which caused, caused it to look white. 
um, and and, and protected you from the sun. Whereas this, the the nanoparticles, the point of that is that the little bits of zinc oxide are so, so small that they still protect you from the sun, but they don't look white on your face. Is that, is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, the zinc normally sticks together and so you get these big clumps. It's kind of like a paste normally. And so the problem that they solved was basically putting it in a solution that, you know, where it wouldn't clump together and you can rub it onto your skin and it wouldn't, it would come out transparent. And, and, and but either way, it doesn't get absorbed, which is where the, the risks may or may not come with the chemical based, which, which the chemical based typical ones get absorbed into your skin. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that's right. Yeah. So they, I wasn't yeah. aware of that. That's something that I learned from your review, Mickey, that. Um, that um, sunscreen is a is a cocktail of chemicals. I always thought it was a physical block. You know, you get this thick cream. I thought that was like a physical block. I didn't realize there was chemicals actually um, preventing sun absorption. Yeah, well, it's one of those things. And and I guess one, you know, just the um, the shock of finding that out as well is enough to make you think twice about putting it on your skin next no, time. No, I grant you so. that. I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, regardless of what these reviews come out with, so, I mean, the FDA, for example, now is actually, after finding out that the sunscreen uh, chemicals enter your bloodstream after you rub it into your skin, mm. uh, they, they're actually doing a review. And they've already found out of the 14 uh, active ingredients in sunscreen, two of them are actually unsafe. Uh, mm. and, uh, and the remaining 12, they just don't know yet. So that's why they're doing this review. They've actually found them to be unsafe as opposed to not finding them to be safe. So I think two two are not generally recognised as safe. So it doesn't maybe necessarily mean that it's unsafe, but um, maybe you've said not they find in, in the review. I'm just looking at your review. They they say that that t- several of the, uh, the most common active ingredients enter the bloodstream at unsafe concentrations. So that's I suppose the point, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So and 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 they haven't been thoroughly tested. So uh, which is so basically when. Um, the FDA took over control of sunscreens. They were kind of the, the sunscreens uh, chemicals were kind of grandfathered in, so they weren't they didn't have to go through the same checks as most things do today. And so now they're finally coming back to them and going, well, maybe we need to test them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it's not just their effect on humans; it's also the effect on the environment. There's, uh, you know, for example, Hawaii and I think some Pacific nations have actually banned. Uh, some chemicals because they've been um, implicated in coral bleaching and uh, and so that's not very good for the coral. I think the advice from the WHO is still that even though there is some question mark about traditional sunscreen, it's still better to wear it than not wear it, right, Mickey? Yeah, I mean, this is the funny thing. I mean, this is kind of a side point, which I found interesting just reading about sunscreen, um, was that Incidents of skin cancer have actually increased since sunscreen came in because people are more confident going out in the sun now. Mm. And so they, they think they can put on all this sunscreen, go out in the sun, and you'll be fine. Uh, so you're actually, the best defense is just not going in the sun too much. Uh, but if you are going to be spending time in the sun, then yeah, I mean, it, it definitely will cut down on skin cancer. It's just maybe there's other ways of doing it that are going to be potentially safer. Mm. Uh, so I think I think to Goro's point though the um, the, the advice definitely still is that you should wear sun cream. Yeah, rather I mean, we don't want yeah. to be. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but I'm just trying to relay what everyone else has said. But yeah, I, I think you know the standard advice would be that not wearing sunscreen would be more dangerous so yeah so i think the thing is with the sunscreen that if you're the the reality is most people aren't rubbing liters of this onto their skin 
every day either. So unless you're spending, most people go to the beach maybe a few times a year and you're out about occasionally, but you might wear it in summer. Uh, so most people probably aren't you know, using it in the sorts of concentrations that are going to be super, super harmful, but they just want to have a look into it. So, hmm. And just getting back to the, the business for a moment, Mickey, um, does the company actually um, have a brand that it sells or does it license the nanotech technology for others to use in their brands? Yeah, so it sells the ingredients in a wholesale manner. So it's not it's not selling to the consumer, it's selling to actually the formulation um, makers. And so the, the, the product is branded, it's called Zinclear. And it comes in two forms. It comes in either a powder form or in a solution. And the solution's mostly for, you know, smaller manufacturers who okay. just want something they can easily put in. And and the other is kind of a powder. But uh, yeah. So the so, customers are actually manufacturers of sunscreen. That's right. Yeah. And they have all the brands. So Zinclear right. really, you wouldn't see it on a on a, on a bottle of sunscreen. Okay. No, no. And the, and the, I guess this is the one of the biggest weaknesses is is if you get a competitor and there are lots of competitors making zinc oxide some even making nanoparticles just um apparently that the the nanoparticles they make aren't quite as good coverage spectrum coverage or maybe a bit more expensive to manufacture but if they do get to the same point i guess where they can make a zinc clear um comparable or something better than zinc clear then there's very little as far as I can see, for a formulation maker to, to not switch to another provider mm. uh, and potentially, you know, save on money or, you know. So do they have any patents over the, the, the um, manufacturing processes and things like that? Yeah, they do. Yeah. No, so yeah. They, they, they've, um, they came out of the University of Western Australia oh, with, yeah. A, yeah, with a, with a but, slew but of the problem, patents. But that was back in 2005 or, well, so the patents, I mean, because they only last 20 years, don't they? So... Yeah, um, I mean, a few of those have got to be ready to roll off, you would think. Yeah, and I guess it's also just the, I guess they can make improvements and keep updating those patents, um, but you've also got to be able to protect them. And I guess if you've got, it's not like a brand where you can kind of protect from that risk. I mean, if you're, you know, if someone overseas wants to make this and they don't have to abide by the same rules and they just want to copy your product and, you know, and 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 the manufacturer, oh, sorry, the sunscreen makers don't have to put on the bottle who's made the thing going into it. So, you know, who's what's to stop them from going through somebody who's just counterfeiting your product? I mean, so I guess these are just risks, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's so, it sounds very like Zuno, which we talked about last week, and which which I wrote a, uh, wrote, a, wrote up a couple of weeks ago, um, in that it it's potentially a great product, but possibly not so easy to protect it and to make the money from it yeah yeah and i guess um well coming back to gorav's very original point as well there's uh i guess a little bit of controversy around some of the management so maybe just go through that very quickly yes yes and i think um so the business was basically uh, i guess got to its current form through uh well lev mizikovsky who is who was the founder of tamawood uh, came along and decided that he was interested in the technology, started buying lots of shares, and eventually got to a point where he, you know, rolled the management, got rid of the board, overturned everything. They basically fired uh, everyone in the company and hired new people and then decided to commercialize some of the technology. Um, and so he's taken the share price from $0.10 cents to $3. So I think you need to give him uh, a lot of credit for that. And he's also got a very good track record at Tamawood. Uh, he started that in, I think, listed in 2000. It's done 
really well. So, you know, delivered great returns for shareholders as well. So clearly a smart businessman, knows how to make money uh, in, in lots of different ways. Um, there's been a couple of things. I think he was in the news for, you know, a motorcycle ticket. Um, and so he crossed a white line in the on, on the road and they gave him a $200 fine and he's been... I think as far as I know, in the courts for three years or something fighting that. Um, and then there was uh, an issue with, I think, Collection House as well, which is, I think, the main two things that people refer to. So he was, he's was he got a habit of basically going activist in companies and boards don't like that. So uh, I think he, he decided to sue them uh, because they made an announcement saying that some of the claims he was making were false. So, um, But I think... Uh, Overall, you've got to hand it to him and say that he's done a great job of, you know, building lots of businesses. He's made lots of money for lots of people, uh, including himself. So, I think on balance, you'd you'd probably say that he's done um, a pretty good job. Why all the antagonism then, Mickey? That that's what really gets me. I don't, you know, I find that quite distracting and and worrying about management that they he, he picks fights with so many people, including the ASX. And it's not generally a good sign, particularly when he's, he's is he threatening now to leave the ASX. And I mean, it just, I just don't have patience for that sort of thing. There's so many opportunities. If you have one manager who's acting a bit crazy, I'm inclined just to put him in a corner and go look at something else. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't want to, you know, cast any judgment personally. I mean, it, uh, yeah. I mean, is my characteristic, um, is that unfair? Or, well, or I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, because I haven't haven't uh, spoken to him personally. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, and I, I can I can see why, you know, that might give that impression. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's, I, mean, I don't know. Yeah. I guess you've got to yeah. be careful, right? Because if you'd come across Steve Jobs um, <laughs> in almost any <laughs> scenario except on stage, you'd think he was a, a crazed lunatic as well and... Putting Apple in the corner would be the worst decision you could ever make. Yeah, I guess the best you can do is just judge everything on its merits. And I think, mm. um, you know, the business seems to be in a pretty good spot, um, and uh, it's got an interesting product. And uh, and 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 management thus far have done a pretty good job of getting it to where it is. I, I mean, I guess all these other things can be a distraction as well. But um, you know, I can't I can't say that if I was in that position, I would would have done something differently. I don't know. So. JC, um, what's your live? What do, we, do you have any thoughts on this? What do you reckon? Well, I would say um, that uh, the management is probably. Um, I mean, it's clearly a risk and a red flag and all that, but it's it's the, probably not the biggest risk with the, with this company. I mean, I think uh, that the the problem is with the competitive advantage, the sustainable competitive advantage, and you, you'd have to think that if this um, nano particle zinc turns out to be the way to go. That um, a lot of a lot of people are going to find out, find very good ways of making it, um, and they'll they'll do so in ways that don't contravene the patents. Um, mm. Is my guess. I mean, you know, you only have to do it slightly differently, and then uh, uh, so you know, for me, that that's the big problem. So yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the thing is, I think is well. The thing that tears me with this company as well, as you can see, so they're ramping up production at the moment and they're going after this opportunity and right now, you know, they're, um, you know, the best in the market and so there's potentially quite a big opportunity. So they're, they're ramping up production to 5,000 tonnes, hmm. which if they get there, that's going to mean probably sales are going to be 10 times maybe what they are today hmm. uh, in, in just a few years. So 
there's a there is a scenario where this business is making a lot of profit very quickly, and you can see the share price going up. Um, over, but but then but then what? You know, is it how long is it going to hold on to those profits? So you could almost see this as kind of a short term trade, where if it gets there, great. Then hopefully maybe you can reassess if you still want to be in the business then. Mm. Um, but it's just one of those tricky ones where you can point holes in it, uh, poke holes in it longer term. But maybe over the short term, if it does do what it's going to say it's going to do, then you can make a lot of money out of it. So, but, but I mean, always the problem with these things, you've got to find someone to sell your shares to just at the moment when, when you think that things aren't going to go so well. So, and you know, that that probably will be apparent to other people by that point as well. So, no, we've, got to, we've got to move on to the next stock. But um, before we do, Mickey, just give us a quick, um, a quick valuation guide on this. Um, what's it trading at now? Is there a point at which you'd be interested? Yeah, I mean, so I think current market cap's about two hundred million, mm. uh, and if they get to where, uh, you know, what they're what they're aiming for, then they could do forty, fifty million dollars in profit. Um, so I mean, I don't know what multiple you'd put that on, but maybe you know, I don't know. Probably more than more than four <laughs> or five. <laughs> definitely, yeah, definitely more than four or five. So yeah, uh, so I mean, it's not it's not so much a question of price. I think at this point, because it's kind of you can see the upside potential definitely at the current price. Hmm. It's more just about getting comfortable with all the with the business and um, and then deciding if you want to if you want to be in it or not. So if everything works, um, we could be looking at a four or five x. Potentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, if everything goes um, really well, and then they can mm. maybe launch some other products. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. Look, I mean, there's definitely there are things to like about it from here. Um, mm. So, I don't know. Maybe we should be upgrading it. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should stop there. Let's all go and buy it. We've got to be careful with all of these because I, I find that it's very easy to sit and make holes in businesses, and um, and often. It's not the most productive use of one's time to come up and, and look for ways everything can go wrong. Yeah. Um, I guess it's hard though because then you just end up, you can always make everything. a case for everything. Yeah. yeah I mean, look, yeah. it's a big market. There's 2,000 yeah. plus stocks out there and uh, I think you've got to be very discerning. You know, mm. that's the, so it's easy. To, this is the sort of stock which, you know, has a fabulous future and you can see why it gets priced highly. Um but well, so, sorry. It looks like sales can grow rapidly, but but the problem is that the the long term uh, position, the long term competitive advantages. And I think if you don't have those, I think you ask mm. the question: what 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 multiple do you put on it? Um, you know, maybe four or five is is too much if it's only going to earn those profits for a couple of years before competitors mm. come in. So, well, if it turns into a commodity producer or something, it's yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, and and there'll be bigger. It'll have bigger competitors that have deeper pockets and better economies of scale. And mm-hmm. now, speaking of uh, big competitors, um, <laughs> James, let's move on to one of the biggest um, media businesses in the world, which is News Corp. Although the Australian listed News Corp isn't necessarily as big as we might think it is, is it? The no, collection of assets not. is quite esoteric, and certainly not as powerful as the American, um, or I guess the all the news that, that uh, Murdoch sold to, um, uh, they sold, sold it to uh, another media company. I can't remember which one. Um, but let's, let's dig into News Corp, James. Um, reading a review, this actually sounded like a quite a cheap stock. And, and yet um, we've elected not to, certainly not to buy it. If anything, you, you sounded quite negative on the company. 
Just run through what you think the most important bits are and, and why you aren't excited by them. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, I guess I am negative on the company, but I'm quite positive on some of its businesses. And that's, that's really the issue with News Corp. It, it suffers from that sort of conglomerate uh, sort of uh, tag that, that other businesses, it sort of went out of fashion in the 90s, didn't it? All these big conglomerates owning everything. Mm. Um, I mean, at least news focuses uh, loosely on media. Um, and so, you know, there, there is a degree of focus and some of its businesses do sort of um, cross-fertilize each other. Um, but the problem is that, that the, the level, level of disclosure is quite poor. Um, the management hasn't been great. They've tended to plow cash into weaker businesses over the years. So you don't necessarily see the value um, that you that you you know you the the value that's in the businesses doesn't necessarily come back to to shareholders and um that that's i suppose the problem so um, what they've done recently they they're trying to correct that problem by um by by uh, splitting out uh, the dow jones business which is definitely one of its better businesses hmm. um and so they had an investor day last month um well a few weeks ago yeah last month so which um Again, was rather disappointing um, because out of about 120 pages of of a presentation, uh, about half of them were just sort of pictures of the front page of the Wall Street Journal with a sort of fancy headline, which sort of tells you quite a lot about the business. They they love their journalism, which is which is good, um, uh, but they really you know they focus on that um, and sort of marketing how good we are as journalists rather than um you know how how good we are as a business and and there wasn't really um that much substance to the disclosures um on Jones. not enough to really um understand um how well the business is going i think mm. but the biggest stake is the rea stake um do you think i mean and i was astounded to to look at your valuation and see that it counts for sixteen dollars i assume that's just at market prices um, that's amazing when the stock's trading at nineteen dollars. Do you think yeah. it's a? I mean, we will never. I, I would think you'd never get sixteen dollars in a realistic market valuation, right? I mean, that's what it says on the books, but you no one will ever pay sixteen dollars a share for that uh, for no. that stake unless no, they sold right. it. Well, that's well. So, I mean, I suppose you don't have to have them sell it you can just let them keep let, let them keep it and it can, can keep going up in value i mean rea has doubled um you know in the last few years and but that, doubled, the value will never doubled be again the then the value of that stake is going to be well well above the um a new scott share price so hmm. um but but if but if rea doubles again then uh you'd do pretty well from buying rea shares as well yes so that's right that's that's really i suppose our argument um the the thing about buying news is that if you, you you get that REA stake and then you get a bunch of other things quite cheaply. So you get the the books um division um and you get Dow Jones most particularly. And that publishing division is actually not too bad, right? I mean they've been making decent profits over the last few years. The book publishing? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Books is books is a nice business and, and a few years ago, when we upgraded it, actually, there was a lot of talk about how books were, were finished in the same way as newspapers were because everyone was on their Kindles. Mm. Um, but 
it turns out digital books are actually quite lucrative. Uh, you don't have to, you know, that you don't have to ship them around the country in large trucks to bookstores. Um, so they actually make better margins and uh, um, an increasing number of uh, increasing amount of their sales has gone to di digital um, okay. and they're making better margins on them. So profits, profits bounce around a bit in book publishing because it depends on what kind of books you've got, whether mm. you've got good ones or, um, you know, but, uh, but the profits have been pretty solid and, and even rising a little bit. So yeah, that, that's an attractive business, although not, I think, as attractive as, as Dow Jones. I think the, uh, the well, I think some one of the things I noticed for just reading your article, James, is it seemed like you're being pretty modest in some parts of the valuation as well. Like it seemed like you could have probably gotten a few more dollars in there if you if you pushed for it. Like for example, there was I think the New York Times comparison, mm. um, which was trading on quite a high high multiple. So what's the difference there in terms of those two businesses, and like why would why wouldn't you? Well, that's that's the difficult thing, isn't it? Do you do you take um, other businesses and just apply, you know, that's the market valuation of the New York Times and possibly it's an overvaluation. So how much do you take that and just apply it directly to, to your valuation of another company? I'm always nervous of peer comparisons for that reason. But does, does it, I mean, the, the, I suppose the difference, they've do, both done similar things and they both have similar advantages. So I think where they um, are better than things like the Australian here and the Sunday Times in the UK, i.e. news is um, other poor old media business. Um, where they have advantages that they saw is that they solve specific problems. So people use the New York Times and they use the um, Wall Street Journal because they think it's going to help them um, with 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 investing and making money. And and people around the world use it as a great source of information for that. So I think it it has that trust. It has that quality. Mm. Um, and Whereas so they both. Just, a big news, is just, news is just kind of becoming a commodity, isn't it, to some degree. Well, to some degree, but I think people still value because there's so much rubbish out there. People are, are actually gravitating towards the the higher quality titles, and and mm. so that's something that news actually Robert Thompson, the chief executive, has been fighting for over the years, and I think he's but finally beginning to get people to pay for that and mm. for getting um, uh, you know online outlets, your Googles and people to to, to sort of pay for it. Um, there's no doubt that's true. The numbers out of New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and The Economist is the other one that's doing really good subscription numbers. And the FT yeah. as well. And the FT, yes. Yeah. Yes, that's what's, yeah, yeah agreed. Yeah. Um, so they're, so they're, and, and what what both have done is they've really focused on, well, they focus on two things. They've they've invested in the business. So, they, so New York Times particularly has paired itself back to just really the title. Um, and it's invested heavily in its journalism. It's backed itself, um, and the Wall Street Journal has done this as well. Um, and it's also invested heavily in its online uh, digital marketing, so that it's become much better at converting people um, from from you know going along and reading the odd article. And then uh, Wall Street Journal has a something it calls the dynamic paywall. Now I don't quite understand how this works, but it but the idea is that it understand it has artificial intelligence where, where it understands whereabouts you are, um, how likely you are to subscribe at a certain point, and it sort of gives you uh, free articles to, to sort of fit that profile. So oh, wow. different people get different um, experiences, and the conversion is much better. 
Um, and New York Times has been doing clever things around that as well. They've got a lot mm. of money to spend on that. And, they've, and, and so they've made that investment. They've mm. made the investment in, in the, the media, the, the content they provide, um, and also in, in their ability to convert people. And I mean, Wall Street Journal's been been raising prices. It's been raising prices. It's been increasing this is online, and it's been increasing digital subscriptions. And they, you know, they both look like they're doing doing very well. The difference is, I suppose, that um, so Wall Street Journal charges uh, twice the price of uh, New York Times. So I think New York Times has a little bit of latent pricing power, and I think the growth in New York Times is looking a little bit better as well. So. Um, it's it's funny. You only need to be going a little bit more quickly to make a much higher multiple uh, appropriate. And so I think that's so. When you look at it, so they're multiple EBITDA multiple about twenty six, and I've, I'm talking about twelve for uh, Dow Jones, which is pretty. Uh, yeah, look, I I think I said in the article. I mean, I, you you could you could argue for more. You could argue for fifteen. And that would add another dollar, really, to news's valuation. But I, I chose not to because I don't think the the disclosure really is there to support that at the moment. Hmm. Um, but it, it, any which way, you're saying that New York Times is worth about um, double the multiple. Well, you know, if it if it brought its prices into line with Wall Street Journal, maybe it'd be making double the profit. So, you hmm. know, um, I, I think you know there there are good reasons why that multiple is a bit higher. Now, there's there's an argument to be made that there's potentially thirty dollars worth of value in News Corp, and it's currently trading under twenty. And you seem very reluctant to want to own it, James. Can you go into the reasons for that? Well, yeah, uh, I've I've um, <laughs> I, I first upgraded. I think it was twenty thirteen, was it, yeah. that I first upgraded it at about twenty dollars. Maybe it was seventeen, giving myself a bit of. And the arguments but, then were very was, similar as they are now. Yeah, right? they're exactly the same. Now. Yeah. And I made the mistake then of overvaluing Foxtel. We knew that it was compromised. We put low mm. multiples on it, but really any multiple was was it should have had a multiple of, of zero. Really, you know. So, mm. um, so that's been a negative, and really REA Group has has come in to fill the gap there. Um, it's just been frustrating and you know perhaps now is perhaps now is the time but you know there it's this conglomerate discount which we didn't we didn't really put enough of a discount on it i think uh to reflect you know it, it's burnt a lot of money over the years in various ventures um and you know if you buy the the best bits particularly rea group of course um that's the only bit you can really buy um separately then you don't you 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 don't have to suffer that so hmm. um i'm just reluctant to um to 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 get into it I, I think it does deserve a bit of a discount so when you look at the sort of when you say it's a 30 dollar price you've 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 rounded that up i mean it's yeah, right. 28 2850 and that includes a full market valuation for rea hmm. so that takes that dollar 115 dollar market price uh, as red, hmm. um, so then you've got to you've got to leave a little bit. You can't you can't you don't want to buy something, uh, own something that's overvalued. Um, and I think it is right to to knock ten or ten or twenty percent off as a conglomerate discount. So that that does get you to our twenty five dollar sell price. Hmm. Um, the question is, so we've got a buy price way down at fifteen dollars, which probably does look a little bit 
um, harsh, you'd you'd probably buy it a little bit higher than that. But I think if if we if we get down there, we'll 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 review that. But for the moment, I'm you know I'm I'm reluctant to to give a lot of credit. I think that people, if they want to buy REA, I think that um, it's a much much better bet. To, to just do that, although our buy price, I should um, stress for REA, is ninety dollars, so we're a little bit above that. Mm. It's it's quite telling that over the course of that six or seven years since we've been rec- since the first time we upgraded News Corp, you would have done much better just buying REA, and I think there's well, no REA is of... pretty much uh, it's more than tripled. So the yeah. the stake News Corp stake, it's in the same bag. I'm looking at it now two point five billion to nine point three billion. It's gone. So it's almost quadrupled. Well, and also uh, the complexity as well and the time spent, you know, getting to know so many different businesses and having to cover them all and everything. It's just... I think that that's actually not to be underestimated Uh, as a a private investor, but also as someone who has to write articles about it. It takes up a huge amount of time and Mm. you're never able really to fully understand every little last bit of it. Well, and what's Warren Buffett saying? He's like, if you have to watch something really closely, you shouldn't own it. It's just takes yeah. up so much time and yeah. energy and effort and 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 funnily enough rea is probably the most straightforward business in there and <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that tells you something doesn't it i mean all the rest of it it's it's pretty hard to to fathom my other problem um, with it it just seems very obvious i mean there's no real hidden value here i mean we're not being particularly clever by totting up all the pieces and finding a discount everyone knows no, people that. have been talking about this for, yeah. for, for years ubs yeah. the broker produces a sort of weekly uh, uh note saying what what the stub assets they call it are worth i.e mm. the non-rea assets are worth and they send that around to all the fund managers and still no one seems to want to buy it so which which, which does tell you something yeah yeah i, I think that's right uh, you know being cheap for, for me also this is there's a bit of a style element here I, I no longer wish to hold cheap but lousy assets, which I have done in the past. And apart from REA, the, uh, and yes, I take your point about Wall Street Journal as well, um, James. I think it's well made. Well, and it's not think, just Wall Street Journal. Sorry, you, you make your point. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I understand. Sorry, yeah, um, about yeah. the that division. Yes, there's yeah. an information service attached to it as well, yeah. which is yeah. is quite valuable. Yeah, I think I think yeah. that's fair. And I think in the original analysis, we potentially undercooked um, that whole division. Um, yeah. And I did notice you you corrected that. So I think that's um that's a worthy update as well. But even with all that, um, you know, I would just rather buy REA than than buy News Corp. But it's a whole bunch of companies I'd rather buy ahead of buying News Corp. And it being a little cheap isn't enough to to dissuade me. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that given you know well, we've only got a hold on it though as well. So it's not a yeah, no, no, we, that's right, yeah. that's right. So at twenty dollars, we're 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 a hold, um, and I think look, if Dow Jones is worth a bit more, then then you possibly do get to your thirty dollars, hmm. but thirty dollars, I think, is then a pretty decent valuation for it, taking as read the REA market value, hmm. and so if that's your your value for it, um, do you really want to push it push uh, owning it beyond twenty five dollars much? Hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and at the current price of $20, what's that, uh, you know, there's not that much to go for. I mean, I suppose you could say there's 33% upside, but that's if you get all the way to what you perceive as its value. Um, and I think some discount is appropriate. Mm-hmm. It's also worth noting that if, um, Murdoch was to leave the business, um, <laughs> or if management were to change, 
<laughs> then that would completely change everything because then you have a breakup candidate and I'd be more interested in it then. Well, that that's right. But that's another point, I suppose, of why you have the conglomerate discount because if, if it did start breaking itself up, um, mm. I, look, I'm no expert in US tax law, but there's there, there are complications mm. around um, how that happens and, and about the tax that has to be paid. Um, you know, there, you'd think there's a big capital gain on that stake in the REA group. So, you know, that's that's where this conglomerate discount has, has real implications. Mm, yep. All right, so it's cheap, but it's not going to be on the buy list at any time, anytime soon anyway, hey, James? Well, who knows? I mean, uh, you know, it only has to fall 5%. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, look, maybe we're being a bit cautious about that, but it yeah. mm. takes up a lot of time. And over the years, that's not been time very well spent. Yeah, I can't say we've all been raising our hands to want to cover it. That's for sure. Yeah. There's businesses that kind of everyone wants to fight to cover and there's companies <laughs> that no one wants to touch. And... Maybe maybe that's the opportunity. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> you know, I look, we'll keep, we'll keep covering it because it is a live recommendation. We have said bye yep. and we are saying hold and we think it's certainly worth holding. There's mm. plenty of value there. Yep. Um, so we will keep covering it. And, you know, possibly, who knows, there'll be an opportunity. Um, I think we've got to be alive to that. Mm. Um, let's move on now to Aussie Broadband, which I um, introduced uh, last week. Now, I first came to this because several people, independent of each other, and in fact, Mickey was one of them, <laughs> mentioned to me that, this um this I, ISP internet service provider was was listing and at first I had no interest I thought you know this is actually a lousy industry very few people make money here and the best of them TPG and Telstra have been complaining about low margins and low profits so why would I buy this tiny I don't know, business I'd never heard of whose sole um, service is to connect NBN customers I just I just one was not interested at all but the um some smart people actually said to me that you know this is actually a really good operator the management's incredible you should at least give it a look and so as i went through the prospectus and started talking to to people i realized that this is actually a, a fantastically managed business that may not look wonderful today but it's beloved by its customers and it's got a def definite plan um to to improving uh, and growing in the future and I think those are the kind of investments that can look interesting. That when you when you do have an incentivized and talented management um, that have a plan for growing the business, and it reminds me a little bit of TPG um, way back when we first looked at that. I think before it even bought Pipe, it was just a, a clear reseller. It didn't have anything of interest to add as as an investor. There was nothing you could point to about TPG and said, "Well, it does this better," or this is interesting for this reason. All it had was management with hustle and um, customers who really liked the low prices. Um, and I see the same kind of hustle with Aussie Broadband and I see the same kind of loyalty, um, even more so with its customers. And I think that can be quite a powerful combination. And that's why I've, I'm quite interested in, in this company, even though it's an IPO when we don't traditionally cover IPOs. Do, do you know, there's a, there's a big difference though, I think, yeah. between TPG and you sort of got to it there with, with, with between DPG and, and Aussie Broadband, which is that 
TPG is all about price, isn't it? And always yeah. has been. Always has been, yeah. And so, look, it's done a great job with that and perhaps understood about that price thing a bit before other people did. But Aussie Broadband's completely at the other end of the spectrum and has yeah. understood that people are prepared to pay a bit more for a really, really good service. Yeah. And competing by providing a really, really good service, if you're good at it, is gives you a bit more in the way of competitive advantage, doesn't it, than competing on on just cost. I think cost is a bit of an easier well, the bigger players have more advantages and it's hard to complete with the likes of Telstra, although, although TPG's obviously managed it. But Aussie Broadband p- competing on service, the the others I think are all leaving quite a bit on the table. Uh um Yeah, well I, I think it's hard to do both well. I mean to to give TPG its due it has taken an extraordinary company culture and a really focused strategy. The TPG has been a success because it has collected customers cheaply and effectively and then moved those customers onto scalable um, infrastructure that it has owned. And it's taken its time and spent money on building its own infrastructure. It has didn't have that um, early on. Um, in, in fact, Aussie is going down the same road now. The reason for the IPO is to raise money to um, build a fiber network that will connect capital cities to data centers. And those traffic routes are currently leased. They, in fact, take up about 75% of of Aussie's revenue. And so it's hard to scale because you're constantly, for every additional customer, you then have to pay 75% of the revenue onto lease costs um, to move the traffic or internet traffic around. But it can replace that um, to some extent and use its own network. It can scale better and it can control traffic and provide a better quality service um, further down the line as well. So it's not an untrodden path. It's quite a good strategy. I wonder as well, like because the, they've done a great job um, going from 1% to 3% market share, I think it was, 3.5%. Yeah, yeah. um, so I think something we talked about um, when we had the discussions about it was, you know, how hard it would be to go from one to 3% compared to three to say 10% or something. So, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what you think like about how, how big it can get and, um, you know, how, yeah, what kind of market share, you know, naturally there is for the kind of this premium end product, hmm. I guess. Yeah. I actually think it's really hard to replicate what they've done because um, the company has no discernible advantage. There are 190 competitors um, providing broadband, Telstra and TPG have, and to some extent Optus, um, have scale advantages. Um, they have marketing advantages, they have brand advantages, and they have bundling advantages. And those are all quite powerful. And the other, you know, 187 competitors have none of those, and they all use the same network. So everyone is leasing capacity from NBN. Everyone is leasing backhaul to get to the NBN. So uh, the fact that uh, Aussie managed to leapfrog everyone and become the number five player is extraordinary. I think I think that is the hardest move to make. Once you've become number five, you're actually generating cash flow. Um, you can reinvest in marketing and you can do what these guys are now doing, um, which is um, getting capital and start the next phase, which is building out your own infrastructure. And once you have that, then you can actually generate some proper advantage uh, and and then you can. I think it will be easier then from to go from three to say seven. Um, I think to get beyond ten would take um, a bit more work, but uh, I think it, the next leg of growth ought to be actually easier than the first leg. 
Yeah, I think because you, you have you get economies of scale, don't you? I mean, there's a there's a degree of fixed cost. Yes, that's um, right. And marketing is is kind of, well. I mean, obviously they'll increase it as they get bigger, but but there's a it's 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 relatively you get more more bang for your buck um, as you get bigger, and as the name gets out there and more people are aware of it, it starts to sell itself. Yep, that's um, right. So I, th- I I think I probably agree with that, but then I also agree with with Mickey's point that it's it's a little bit of an unknown about how uh, big the market is for that premium service whether whether 10 percent of people really want to pay a bit extra for a really really good service i mean and and the really good service what that means basically i think isn't it we're, we're just when you have a problem you, you call up or you text or you go on the app or you you contact someone in some way um and it gets fixed a lot more more easily does it is that is that's well, basically there, the difference is it no there are a couple of elements there so the way the nbn works is that the retailers have to it's a lot like the electricity market um retailers have to go out and purchase bandwidth and they have to do that up front and then they have to manage the bandwidth so consistently going back to the market and buying more or relinquishing some they have to manage the bandwidth um for every customer so the and speed is more consistent. Is it? Is that exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the amount of, of money you're willing to spend up front will largely determine your speed experience. So a lot of the complaints about the NBN, and I've been loud in my complaints as well. It's, it's the Sunday night Netflix problem. <laughs> it, it, well, yes. Um, part, some of them are due to the lousy infrastructure that the NBN has been forced to build. Um, and some of them are due to um, the poor pricing structure, which forces... Um, retailers to make upfront payments to service customers effectively. And if they don't buy the right capacity, if they don't have uh, redundancy in their leasing network, so there's several international cables you can lease. If you lease one that happens to be congested, you're going to get slowed down. Aussie Broadband actually leases on multiple cables to, to build redundancy. That all actually costs money. It takes working capital and it lowers margin unless you recapture it at the retail price. And that's what Aussie has managed to do. They've they've done very well in in purchasing adequate and perhaps above adequate bandwidth. They've created software to manage the bandwidth arguably better than anyone else. TPG also does this very well, by the way, but lots of people don't. Um, they manage that bandwidth for each customer and then they charge for it at the end, which TPG does not do, but but they do. Uh, and and that's that creates a better customer experience. Um, it's, so it's, they have it's, it's speed and liability. So they have higher ARPU, revenue per user. Correct. Um, but at the moment, the, the higher costs mean that the margin is their margin is much lower than other providers, but uh, hopefully as they get bigger. So they need to get bigger in order for that margin to get up. Is that yeah, right? Well, they're currently they making a loss. Um, so they're currently making a loss, right? But yeah. they're making an EBIT margin, aren't they? Oh, no, you're looking at 2025. Yeah, when, yeah. They, when will they get profitable, do you think? When do they reach? Do well, they the, this year they should they should make a notional EBITDA margin. But I would caution that EBITDA, because they need to amortize their lease agreements, it's not the best way to think about this business. And EBIT profit will probably in it's probably a couple of years out still, maybe two years out. Um, and the infrastructure part of the business would really help that because it will then allow the company to actually generate um, operating leverage, scale. Mm. Um, and you then only then can you generate proper margins, really. Um, otherwise, yeah. you're always going to be subscale. But we're so, talking about them needing 4 or 
market share are we in order to make uh, make any kind of EBIT profit? Yeah, I think that's right. I think because so, yeah. I noticed that they did a um a deal with Opticom to provide yeah. their broadband in, in in their networks. And one of the interesting things I thought about that at the time was that so Optus and Telstra refused to go into Opticom's network. So yep. I guess Aussie brand broadband, but so but Opticom's already got all this fiber in the ground. So, I mean, could that, and you're seeing a lot of M&A in that space. So, yep. um, you know, that could be like a natural natural purchase or something. You could even see something like that happening, maybe. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's lots of transactions to be done here. There's a lot of um, competitors and um, some sort of integration makes sense. The reason why Optus and um, Telstra ref- refuse to um, service those areas is is really because they're too high cost. Their cost to serve are too high, and they can't make a margin on pure reselling. You really have to be a bit more nimble um, to be able to do that. Uh, and and I think Aussie does actually make um, margin on those reselling agreements, um, where some of the larger guys do not. But the um, yeah. the Opticom the fiber that Opticom owns. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but mm. but. Um, is more the last mile sort of fiber, is that right? Whereas what what Aussie Broadband is trying to build and what will really benefit its margins is is the backhaul. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's right. Cities. Is that right? Sure. Well, you can't actually, because the NBN is a um, regulated monopoly, you can't actually, um, well, well, there are, <laughs> it gets complicated. <laughs> there, there, are, there are some exceptions to that, but generally um, you can't, compete with NBN, there are exceptions. And TPG in particular has done well to do it. Telstra has done well to do it. But you need specific um, order, uh, specific reasons in place to be able to compete with yeah. the NBMs. But I guess the, the thing, the, the, the only um, I think I guess I was trying to, a point I was trying to make was just that, you know, is there a point of these guys actually going out, building their whole network, or would they just plug into someone else that already yeah. has that network? Yeah, and just... They will plug into someone else, but but they have to get traffic to that other network, and that's what backhaul is. So at the moment, yep. they lease fiber, dark fiber from Vocus, um, primarily to access the NBN and to access um, Opticom. Hmm. But by building their own, they can cut all those um, those leasing costs out, and it allows you to also better manage your traffic as well. Um, one way these guys have been really good is just by harnessing control of every part of the experience. So they've actually built their own billing system, their own customer um, uh, customer management system, and as I said, their own um, NBN control monitoring system. And they've done that over years, and it, it appears to be better than any of the competitors because um, the survey results, the awards, the customer retention, um, all suggest that this is well-loved by customers. And the fact that customers are clamoring to to buy in the IPO, I think it was oversubscribed by by multiples. Um, a lot. A lot, yeah. And actually, <laughs> the offer closed early, and um, by all accounts, it was very hard to get any stock. Um, I think that all speaks quite positively um, about um, how the, the way the business has been performing. I, I, I do like where it's headed as well. I mean, management has talked about things like... Um, They've built an enterprise portal, so they've never had any enterprise sales, but they're now building a sales team and um, a portal to generate enterprise sales. That's going to be quite valuable. Um, and they might be able to do some bundling later on by entering mobile. Um, and bundling really helps with your retention rates. Mm-hmm. So there's lots more optionality further down the line. The IPO price is super attractive. I do not expect on day one we'll get anywhere near that. It's probably going to jump 
30% plus on day one. Um, and even then, if we can pick this up around $1.30, I'd be, I'd be reasonably happy to pay that. Um, uh, I've put some numbers in the article, um, you know, that you can go ahead and, and have a look at that. But really, what this idea is about is is identifying a, a company, a management with with real entrepreneurial flair, or with a great track record, and with every incentive in the world to do well. Um, one of the best things about the IPO is that no, not a single insider is selling any stock, and I don't think I've seen that very often at all. Um, they're all retaining every share they have. Um, so this is not an opportunity for them to cash out. They're raising capital for a legitimate purpose. I guess you never know. I mean, they could sell in a year or something. Correct. But yeah, there's no agreements. Yeah. There's no lock-up yeah. agreements or anything. But yeah. At yeah. least they're not selling into the thing now. That's, yeah, good. Yeah, Hopefully but... they're buying shares once it comes out. Yeah, well, they already own um, millions of dollars worth of stocks. So. <laughs> And you know, you, I, I don't expect to be buying more, but um, but yeah, it's it's most. I suppose I just wait for the insiders to cash out, and this is not that. No, I suppose no. the point is that the price that they're raising the money at at a dollar, as you say, it's very attractive. So they they'd actually get more by selling on market. <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking is, <laughs> yeah. is maybe are they waiting for the price to to go up, and maybe then they'll. Look but at... I don't think you'd begrudge them it. I, I mean, um, no, you no. know, I think people are allowed to to mm. recover a bit of their investment. They've mm. built build a fabulous business, and um, who'd if they want to buy a nice house out of it, then who'd who'd begrudge them that? Yeah, no, I agree. They're modestly paid as well, so most of their wealth is actually tied up in the business. And I think that um, that speaks well as well. I've heard of, I've heard, heard the um, MD talk, and um, he has the same kind of um, obsession <laughs> with the company um, and its quality as as great founders tend to. So um, it's one that I'm going to try and. and um, I'd love to be able to upgrade, actually, um, depending on the price. I think I have to get through you guys as well. Because, oh, look, uh, I think uh, I think we all like it. I think we're we're just the, um, the we're, price, it, yeah. let's wait and see what the price is when it yeah. lists, because uh, that's going to be the, the sticking point, I think. So rest assured, um, on listing day, I'll have an update. So list on the twenty seventh of October. I'll update it, um, and the recommendation will really just depend on where the price lands. I'm expecting, and everyone should expect, a very large jump on day one. Right, gents, it's been a very long podcast. I feel as though this whole um, isolation, uh, podcasting in isolation is taking its toll. We're, we're in multiple locations. We haven't really met up in a while. It's easy to ramble on, that's for sure. <laughs> I know, right? It's easy to ramble on. Yeah, yeah. So we'll try and tighten it up next time, maybe. All right, gents. Um, Mickey, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Gareth. JC, good of you to join us. Cheers, Gareth. And for everyone else, thank you for listening.